several weeks ago, we came into Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to stretch it out a little bit over the next several weeks because there is so much in that passage. The main theme of Genesis chapter 22 was that of radical obedience. Obeying God's word, obeying God's direction, no matter what. And as we began to talk about the whole concept of radical obedience, we defined it this way. Radical obedience is obeying through faith, even when we don't fully understand. Now, last week, we took a look at Genesis chapter 22 and, look at, and took a little out of a look at kind of the context in which it was taking place, that Abraham did not have God's full revelation of himself as we do through both Old Testament, New Testament, and through the life of Christ. We talked about the fact that God came in a unique culture of that time in which there was a question as to whether or not it was appropriate to sacrifice a child. And many of the cultures around them did. We saw that there was an element of faith all the way through that even in the midst of the struggle, that Abraham understood that God was doing something. And we looked at the fact that Moses began that whole section by this little phrase, and God tested Abraham, that there was a purpose just beyond this sort of interaction. Something was going on, and we're going to look a little bit more at that uh, in several weeks from now. But one of the things that we need to admit, and one of the things that we struggle with, is there is an offensiveness to Genesis chapter 22. That the God that we know as revealed through the New Testament and in the life of Christ would ask somebody to sacrifice their child. And that idea of the innocent dying for the guilty, that idea of my guilt, my responsibility, my violations being placed upon somebody else who is innocent of those things, that bothers us. That violates our sensitivities. And yet we need to understand that concept. There is an offense to the gospel. There are ways that when we preach the gospel, when we tell the message of Christ, there are ways in which it offends us. Paul talked about the offense of the cross, meaning that this method of capital punishment that was performed only on the most vile of criminals becomes the foundation of our faith. And Paul says to the Greek, that was just foolishness. It's offensive. To the Jewish person at the time, there was the idea that that God would become man and that God was father, son, and spirit and all of those things and, and just offended the Jews of that time. In our culture, we're often offended by what seems to be unjust in the gospel message. In dealing with that idea, that topic, one of the great writers of the last century in Christian realms was C.S. Lewis. And I remember discovering C.S. Lewis when I was in college, 
Many of us discover C.S. Lewis when we're in college. And I can remember Cindy and I would be driving to different places, and, yeah, I used to make her sit right next to me, you know. And, and, but she would be reading the book as we would be driving, and, and some of our favorites were the children's reading, the writing, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia. But what C.S. Lewis did in the Chronicles of Narnia is he created an allegory. He, he took the truths and the realities of what we know about the gospel message, and he wrote it in a way that is unique. And he was taking different aspects of the story that he wrote. And as we read through that story, as we read through the death of Aslan, and as we read through all the different aspects, we hear echoed in that story that C.S. Lewis wrote, we hear echoing the truths, the reality of the gospel message. See if you can hear some of them in this particular clip. You have a traitor in your midst, Aslan. His offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Do not cite the deep magic to me, which I was there when it was written. Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Try taking that. Do you really think that mere force will deny me my right? Little king. Aslan knows that unless I have blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die on the stone table. As is tradition. You dare not refuse me. Enough. I will talk with you alone. interpreted the deep magic differently that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead the stone table will crack and even death itself would turn backwards I thought about passing out in the bulletin a blank sheet of paper and as the video clip was going on have you write down 
all the images, all the ways in which the gospel message is echoed in those three little scenes. There's so many. As you read or as you read through the story or you, you watch the movie, you see Aslan as a representation of Jesus, the son of the great king the one whose kingdom is specific and meant to exist within a world and a demonstration of Aslan's reign. You see the stone table as a representation of the cross and the grave. And you see the resurrection when the grave was broken and the stone table was smashed. And you hear that theme. The witch represents evil and Satan and all that stands against God's kingdom. Seeks to oppress God's creation. Edward is fallen mankind who has violated the standards, who has betrayed the law and stands under judgment. You have sacrifice, you have resurrection, you have sovereignty. And also, in that very first clip, there was an interesting interaction between King Peter and the white witch as the white witch declares, that one is mine, and Peter draws his sword to make things right out of action and fighting, and the white witch says something like this, Aslan knows that if the law is not fulfilled, that all of creation will melt, be destroyed in a great conflagration. The word that C.S. Lewis uses to describe that interaction, he, saw, he talks about a deep magic. And sometimes as Christians, we don't like that word. But a deeper reality a deeper truth that helps us begin to understand the complexity of what is going on. The reality that a life can be given, an innocent life can be given for a guilty life. And that sacrifice and love is the means by which God through grace overcomes evil. Now, what is so interesting about C.S. Lewis is his story came after the events of the cross and Christ's life. But in some ways, Genesis chapter 22 is a prequel allegory. You know, you have all these prequels going on right now, you know, with, with Star Wars, you got to do the prequel. And with this one, you got to do the prequel. Well, in a sense, Genesis 22 is an allegory written before the events in which the themes of a story that happened 2,000 years before the life of Christ and written down probably 1,400 years before the life of Christ, that very story of Abraham and his son reverberates throughout the New Testament. And it becomes an allegory, a 
a, a parable, if you want, a, a, a type, if you are theological, of what God is all about and what God is doing. Now, in order to be radically obedient, we need to understand God's grace, and our radical obedience must rest on the grace of God demonstrated in his provision. You will not know God's grace by looking at a specific event in your life. You will not know God's grace by taking down the pros and the cons of the good things in your life and the difficult things in your life. That's not where you will find the grace of God. You will find the grace of God in all of its splendor, in all of its majesty. You'll find some grace of God in those individual events. The place you find the grace of God screamed in the loudest of voices is in the provision of the cross. And that is what is talked about in Genesis 22 and echoes into eternity. Now, the radically, to radically obey, we need to wrestle with this foreshadowing sacrifice. We, we need to understand, even though it appears so unjust, what's going on. And we wrestle with it because the particular story of sacrifice reverberates in the events of Christ's life. Think about Jesus' life and some of the events that you see in Genesis chapter 22. You see an innocent victim. Isaac hasn't done anything wrong. Isaac is taken by his father up to Mount Moriah, and there he is about to be sacrificed in obedience to God. That offends us, and it ought to, if that's all there is. We see a loving father struggling with what seems so absurd. Struggling in the midst of uncertainty of what God is going to do. And he's able to say to his servants, stay here. We, a plural use of the pronoun, will return. He, he says to Isaac, when Isaac says, I see the wood, I see the flame, but where's the sacrifice? He's able to say, God will provide the sacrifice. There's faith there. But there's phenomenal turmoil. You see, the sacrifice himself carrying the wood of his sacrifice. For Jesus, it was his cross. For Isaac, it's the very wood upon which he was to be burned. This is the one that really can bother us. We see God pleased by the killing of an innocent person. Figuratively in Genesis 22, as the New Testament says that figuratively Isaac died because it was at the very last moment the angel said, Abraham, stop. But when we look at the gospel, it is innocent Jesus. And God is pleased. We struggle with a radical 
form of religiosity right now in which the believers within radical Islam believe that God is pleased by their violence against who they deem to be unbelievers. Now what's going on here? If we look at just the face and we don't have the whole of Revelation, if we just stop there, there would be great confusion. And we might believe the kind of stuff that false religions believe. It's this, this, this very theme, this very story, the words of this story appear over and over again in the New Testament. Some of them you know, but you've never thought about. Remember the, the, the phrases in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, where, where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your, your beloved son, Isaac. The words where God says to Abraham, you who would not spare your own son. The idea of the beloved one, the idea of the lamb that would be provided by God, that reverberates throughout the New Testament. You can read it in in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Why? He who did not spare his own son, the very words of God to Abraham, but gave him up for us. This is an important story, Genesis 22. How about this one? And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. It's very interesting the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Got that? Uses exactly the same words in Matthew 3, 17 and Matthew 17, 5 that they use in Genesis chapter 22. My beloved son. How about this one? You ever heard this verse before? For God so loved the world that he gave his what? One and only, his unique son. Again, same words found in Genesis 22. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. How about this one? The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the lamb, and one of the ways to understand this, which is from God, who takes away the sins of the world. And specifically, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, the whole idea of resurrection is found here. By faith, Abraham, when God test, that offered Isaac as a sacrifice, he who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring, offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death. From death. This is an important story. Now, in order to understand it, we need to take and understand, will you forgive my C.S. Lewis nomenclature? We need to look at some of the deeper magic, some of the deeper truths. For to understand what is going on here, we need to understand God's holiness, God's grace, 
God's mercy and God's love. But above all, it's his holiness. Too often we think of God as, you know, the big guy in the sky. Too often we have become complacent with the reality of who God is. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is merciful. Yes, God is gracious. Yes, God is kind. Yes, God is good. He is all those things. But there is only one attribute of God which is declared in the superlative by declaring it three times. And that's found in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah says that the very angels throughout eternity proclaim that God is not love, 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 not grace, 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 not mercy, 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 not those things. He is those things. But that God is what? Holy. 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 We have lost touch with the holiness of God. That's why we struggle so much with these passages. That's why we struggle so much with the reality of what Christ accomplished. We've lost touch with the Trinity, that God is one being, one God in three persons. So that which Jesus does, God does. That which the Father does, God does. That which the Spirit does, God does. And in that is not found a violation of our sensibility, but an incredible, overwhelming declaration of God's love and grace. You see, to radically obey, we need to understand how an innocent sacrifice restores our relationship with God. Whether we read it in Isaiah chapter 53, or whether we understand it in the image of Genesis 22, or whether we read it in Romans chapter 8, or Romans chapter 5, or Romans chapter 6, or Romans chapter 3, or Hebrews chapter 9, or Hebrews chapter 10, the reality of it is that there was an innocent one, Jesus, who died for you and for me. And it's on that basis that our relationship with God is established. It is also on that basis that the quality of our lives are to be lived. That God's holiness and love and grace and mercy should be demonstrated in us. For we are to be like God. Now, the first deeper truth should have been deeper, not deepest. I think it kept changing it on me. Is this, that God's moral perfection, his holiness, his otherness, his, I love the word the Hebrews use, his kabah, his heaviness. None of you, few of you grew up in the 60s. But remember the phrase, man, that's heavy, man. That's really heavy. It meant it was was beyond comprehension in a sense. 
That's God's moral perfection. God is perfect. The universe, all of creation, is founded upon the holiness of God, the perfection of God, that which violates the perfection of God, violates the purpose and meaning of the universe. And God, if he were to violate his own holiness, would destroy the very foundation of everything that exists. The white witch was right. If the law, in this case, if God's holiness is not in some way sustained, all is finished. That perfection of God is talked about a number of different ways. First Timothy says it this way, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, and who, now listen to this, who lives in unapproachable light. No one has seen or can see. We've never seen the Father. John tells us that it is the only begotten God, the, the second person who comes and reveals the Father. Why? Because God is unapproachable. He is perfect in every sense of that word. His holiness, his glory would destroy us. Habakkuk says it this way. Your eyes, he's talking to God, are too pure to look on evil. You can not tolerate wrong. What we have seen in our nation in the last week, what we see of the violence in the inner cities, what we see in, in the death of innocent unborn children, God cannot tolerate. And then 1 John 1 verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and therefore and declare to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness. He is perfect morally. He is perfect in character. He is totally other from us. He is outside of creation and brought creation into existence. The second deep truth is this, that God's holiness, when violated, must receive satisfaction for the wrong and injury done to that holiness. He can't say, whatever. It must be dealt with. That's the phrase, wrath of God. Now, be careful of that word. We don't understand. We, 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 that is an anthropomorphic description of God. In other words, trying to describe God in human form, it, it, it isn't a perfect statement. It, it misses something. God's anger is not like my anger. Impetuous. Responsive. Self-centered and selfish. Uncaring about others. Seldom is it because there is a violation of wrong or a violation of right, the evidence of wrong. God's wrath is his response to the violation of his holiness. It cannot be tolerated. It must be dealt with. It must be addressed. 
It must be satisfied. Again, you see that in passage like Colossians 3. This is the English Standard Version. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, God is patient with his wrath. He tolerates for a while, but the whole idea is that there is a time when God says enough. That was Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a time when God says enough. That will be eschatology, the end times, when God says, I cannot take it anymore. It has gone too far. But God's holiness must be satisfied. The third of the deep truths is this, that the cost is too great for us to ever pay. So Jesus paid it for us. There were two realities to God that he chose to reconcile. His holiness, which cannot tolerate any the minutest presence of wrong and his love. His holiness said that for the sins we've committed, can we all admit that at times we've done wrong? Go like this, everyone has. It deserves to be separated from God for eternity. The only way to pay it is eternal separation. And God's love that longed to be in relationship with his creation. God could not let his holiness go unanswered. God could not let his love go unenjoyed. So the scripture says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means placed in a right position before God by his grace as a gift through the redemption. That is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a, this wonderful word, propitiation. You probably don't use it in your vocabulary very often. You probably have not said to your children lately, you need to have a propitious response to what you just did. The word propitiation, the the part that's in italics, means one who provides satisfaction for the wrong and injury done. Who provided the satisfaction for God's holiness? Jesus. How did he do it? By his blood, meaning his life. And we simply receive it by faith. And he did this to show his righteousness that at the present time, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's the reason why God can be patient, long-suffering in his dealing with evil. But eventually, it will be dealt with. One of my favorite verses, and again, I... I mentioned I was doing, at a service I was doing not too long ago that with all the political stuff going on, all these political people are saying, my favorite Bible verse is, I couldn't give you one, but this is one of them. I love this verse. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us, made us right. Uh, What Eric talked about last week in the communion uh, devotional time, that we are reconciled. He reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry to tell others of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's sin against them. How? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might have a right relationship with God. But the most amazing truth of all, are you ready? And I I truly mean that. I don't mean that just to be dramatic. It's what blew me away when I first came to really understand this verse. I was reading John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. And in that, he took this verse... And he says, here's how you see God's grace in the death of an innocent. You see, the deepest truth is this, that it is God himself who paid for his own satisfaction. God paid the price. I couldn't. You couldn't. But yet his holiness had to be satisfied. The violation had to be made right. And so God says, I'll do it to satisfy my own holiness. That verse we just read, here's where it says it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave a witness of reconciliation. Notice that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Who is Christ? It's God himself. It's the second person of the Godhead. It's God saying, my holiness must be sacrificed, I mean, satisfied, and I will be the sacrifice. You could actually translate it this way to bring out the impact of it. That it was through Christ that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God in Christ, God in himself paid the cost. If you have children, you'll have a little bit of a taste of this. When your children are out playing with their BB gun and it breaks a window, who pays? When your minor child does something wrong, who will pay? Now, there's one big difference. I'm paying to something outside. I don't pay myself. But here, God satisfied his own requirement of holiness in himself by the fact that Christ took upon him his self-flesh and died for us. Here's the truth. God, that is God the Father, 
through sending God the Son, satisfied all the requirements of God's, his own holiness, in order that we might enjoy an internal relationship with him. Two more words could probably should be put up there. Through faith. You will not choose to be radically obedient to God unless you know who God is, unless you know his love, his grace, his wisdom, his goodness, his mercy. Once I understand that, once I understand that as his child, when I've accepted his son through faith, that there is nothing that separates me from God, that God is for me, that in God all is yes through Christ. Then I will trust him. And when I must make that difficult decision, when I must choose that difficult direction, Abraham understood it. He didn't see how it was going to work out, but he knew that God had given Sarah 90 years old and Abraham 100 years old a child. God, you've been good for all of these 25, 30 years, 40 years that now I can trust you. You are a good God and therefore I can obey you even when it doesn't make sense. It is the fact that an innocent sacrifice, God himself made everything right and took away anything that keeps him from pouring his love and mercy into my life through the death of Christ. To radically obey, finally, we need to accept our rightness with God, foreshadowed in this difficult story that reveals both God's holiness and his grace. We respond. We respond first by putting our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior, accepting his payment, his gift for us, that I can be right before God. And then I choose to live out that grace, live out God's kingdom in every area of my life. Even at times when it may not immediately make sense. Father, thank you for the message we have of Abraham and his faithfulness. But Father, even more so, thank you for the story we have of your holiness and grace. Father, we've said nothing new this morning. We, we talk about this often, but remind us again of the incredible grace and mercy and holiness of who you are. Father, if there's someone here that's never trusted your son as their savior, never accepted that gift, May they deal with that this morning and talk to me or someone else. Father, for all of us, may we in our lives seek to live out, yes, the requirements of your holiness, but under the understanding of your grace, for your glory and for your kingdom.
Amen.